0: Hello and happy new year. Welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Elspeth Hunt and I'm an associate in the employment team. I'm joined by Kate Brearley, a partner in the Stevenson Harwood International Employment Group. In this month's podcast, we will discuss some key employment law topics businesses need to be aware of in 2021. We will look at the impact of Brexit on employment law, the case of UQ and Marclean, which deals with the reference period for triggering collective consultation obligations, the government's consultation on post termination restrictive covenants, some key cases that we will be watching throughout the year, and changes to statutory pay rates. There's obviously a lot going on at the moment, far beyond what can be covered in one podcast, so you'll be pleased to hear that this episode will be a Covid-free and furlough-free zone.
1: Thanks, Elspeth. Brexit is one topic that looms large this year, and it would be remiss not to touch on it briefly. So as a result of commitments made in the trade and cooperation agreement reached on Christmas Eve, it's unlikely we will see any large-scale overhaul of employment law in the UK. The agreement includes a commitment that the UK will not weaken or reduce labour and social standards below the levels in place at the end of the transition period in a manner affecting trade or investment, including by a failure of enforcement. This applies to fundamental rights at work, health and safety standards, fair working conditions, employment standards, information and consultation
0: rights and restructuring of undertakings. So what does this mean for employment rights that are derived from European case law and legislation?
1: Now that we've left the European Union all EU derived rights and legislation that were in effect before the 31st December 2020 have been carried over into domestic law and this is being referred to as retained EU law. The Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal will continue to be bound by retained EU law However, the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court can choose to depart from retained EU law if, and the wording is, it seems right to do so. And Parliament can also choose to legislate otherwise.
0: Since we're discussing EU law, let's move on to our next topic, which is a key decision of the European Court of Justice. Throughout 2020, many employers have had to take the difficult decision to make redundancies as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Given the rising infection rates and recent lockdown, it seems likely that this trend will continue well into 2021. In light of this, last month's decision in UQ and Marclean Technologies, SLU, will have an impact on many employers proposing to carry out multiple redundancies. So
1: what was the specific issue the ECJ was grappling with in Marclean?
0: The issue was what triggers the collective consultation obligations where an employer is making a number of redundancies. By way of a reminder on the legal background, under the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992, commonly referred to as Tullrooker, an employer must collectively consult with recognised trade unions or, where there are none, elected employee representatives and notify the government on Form HR1 if it is, in inverted commas, proposing to dismiss, close inverted commas, as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a period of 90 days. In the UK, this has generally been understood as a forward-looking obligation. However, Marklein questions that position. In Marklein, the Spanish courts referred the case to the European Court of Justice to clarify the position on collective consultation trigger points.
1: What was the ECJ's decision?
0: The European Court of Justice held that when establishing if collective consultation obligations have been triggered, Employees need to look at a rolling 90-day period and need to take account of dismissals that have already been carried out or are underway.
1: You mentioned that the obligation in the UK is generally seen to be a forward-looking obligation. Doesn't this conflict with the decision in the case?
0: In short, yes. The decision seems to directly contradict a section of Tolerica which says that no account should be taken of employees whose dismissal consultation has already begun. As the Markling decision was made pre-Brexit, this means that it is retained EU law and therefore will continue to apply, which is why employers need to be aware of the decision. As you've already explained, if a case regarding collective consultation were to go before the Employment Tribunal or the Employment Appeal Tribunal, for example, then they would still have to try and give effect to the Markling decision. However, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court have the power to, and could, decide not to follow Marklean if it seems right to do so equally parliament could decide to legislate otherwise so whilst this impact may be limited in the long term for the short to medium term it is still good law and should be followed until the court of appeal supreme court or parliament decide otherwise obviously that
1: raises the question what employers should be doing now if they're considering multiple redundancies it's an issue our team have already addressed with a number of clients and perhaps you could briefly summarize our views elspeth
0: of course Firstly, if an employer is proposing to make redundancies, then they should consider all the redundancies that have been recently carried out, as well as any anticipated redundancies, to see if the obligation to collectively consult is triggered in accordance with a marking decision. Secondly, if there is an unexpected change of plan and more redundancies have to be made than initially proposed, then if the employees for whom consultation has already begun are still within the organisation, the employer should collectively consult with them Despite the wording in Taurica, this might appear overly cautious. However, it's important to remember, firstly and most importantly, that the tribunal may make a protective ward of up to 90 days per employee where an employer fails to collectively consult. And secondly, that it is a criminal offence to fail to notify the Secretary of State about collective redundancies via an HR1 form.
1: So, turning to the government's consultation on reform of post termination restrictive covenants. Listeners may remember that, in two thousand and sixteen, there was a call for evidence whether changes were required in the current law. unsurprisingly, in our view, the conclusion was that there was not the law was fit for purpose. However, the government, in its infinite wisdom, has changed its mind, driven apparently by the joint objectives of making the u k more competitive and job creation. The consultation ends on twenty sixth of February, so not long to go. And focuses predominantly on non-compete clauses, so the types of clauses that prohibit an employee joining a competitor or from setting up a competing business for a period of time after they leave. Ironically, having just left the EU, the main thrust of the government's thinking is to move to a European model which requires employers to pay ex-employees, usually a percentage of what was their salary, for the period of the non-compete covenant, and also raises the possibility of a cap on the length of the covenant. As an alternative to those proposals, views are sought on banning non-compete covenants altogether, an outcome which we think is extremely unlikely. There's also a proposal to extend new rules on payment and maximum periods to other types of government and employment contracts, so for example, covenants dealing with or soliciting business from clients, and possibly also in other contracts such as consultancy contracts, franchise agreements and partnership agreements. Quite why the government is focusing on this area of employment law now is something of a mystery. However, Non compete covenants alongside non dealing and non solicitation covenants are key weapons in an employer's business protection armoury. So, this is an important topic.
0: So, what should employers be doing now, Kate? At this stage, engaging
1: with us so we can feed your thoughts into responses to the consultation. Within Stevenson-Harwood, we've already debated the alternative approaches the government has sought views on. Also, separately, I'm chairing a committee of city solicitors preparing a response to the consultation. So what would be really helpful is if listeners could let us know their views. If, for example, payment were to be introduced, then some corresponding benefit for employers should ideally be secured. Turning now to some key cases, uh, what we wanted to touch on was a few cases that we will be watching this year. So firstly, as many listeners are probably aware, Uber have appealed the Court of Appeals' decision that their drivers are workers for the purposes of the Employment Rights Act 1996, the National Minimum Wage Act 1998 and the Working Time Regulations. As at the time of this recording, we're still waiting for the Supreme Court's decision in the case. In our view, it's very unlikely that Uber's appeal will be successful, in which case Uber drivers will continue to be categorised as workers. It follows from this that gig economy companies such as Uber will face extra costs, such as holiday pay and minimum wage costs, There are already other similar claims underway and if the appeal is dismissed, as we anticipate it will be, this may well open the floodgates for even more claims from individuals seeking worker status and recovering unlawful deductions of wages.
0: Another Supreme Court case where judgment hasn't yet been given is the equal pay case of Asda Stores and Brierley. Asda have appealed the Court of Appeals' decision that workers in retail stores, who were predominantly female, were employed on comparable terms and conditions to those working in separate distribution depots who were predominantly male for the purposes of the Equal Pay claims under the Equality Act and the Equal Pay Act 1970. Whilst the facts of this case are specific to ASDA, If ASDA are unsuccessful, then we expect that this will further increase scrutiny on the issue of equal pay and employers should therefore consider taking action to address any equal pay issues that may have been raised through their gender pay gap reporting.
1: Another area coming under scrutiny by the Supreme Court this year is the favourite topic of holiday pay. Two key cases are due to be heard in the Supreme Court in June 2021. The first is Flowers, an East of England Ambulance Trust, and the second, Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland versus Agnew. In Flowers, the East of England Ambulance Trust are appealing the Court of Appeals decision that voluntary overtime, which is, quote, sufficiently regular and settled, close quotes, should be included in the calculation of holiday pay. If the Supreme Court upholds the Court of Appeal's decision, then employers paying overtime will need to review their pay practices to ensure it captures the relevant voluntary overtime.
0: Also on holiday pay, as you already mentioned, in Agnew, the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal held the English case law, which says that a series of unlawful deductions is broken by a gap of three months or a lawful payment, was incorrect. Whilst the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal's decision is not binding in England, Wales or Scotland, the Supreme Court's decision will be binding. If the Supreme Court agrees with the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal, then workers will be able to recover underpayments going back up to two years, which would significantly increase the cost of historical holiday pay claims, as neither a three-month gap nor a lawful payment of holiday pay would break the series of deductions.
1: As usual, we will be monitoring the outcome of all these cases and will provide updates as the judgments are handed down. So lastly, the government has published its changes to statutory pay rates. What changes can we expect to see, Elspeth?
0: Well, the changes that we can expect to see are pretty modest with increases of less than a pound. Firstly, the rate of statutory maternity pay, paternity pay and adoption pay, which is currently at 151 pounds and 20 pence a week will rise to only £151.97 per week or 90% of the employee's average weekly earnings, whichever is lower. Secondly, the pay for parental bereavement leave, which is available to parents of a child who died on or after the 6th of April 2020, will see the first increase since the leave was introduced last year. This pay will also increase to £151.97 per week. Finally, Statutory sick pay is expected to increase from £95.85 to £96.35. All of these changes are expected to come into force in April 2021. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Do get in touch with us if you have any queries about the topics that we have discussed today or any other employment law query. In the meantime, thank you for joining us and don't forget that you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com.